the Old Testament and to the little book of Haggai, 791 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to look at the message of this two-chapter but wonderful book. I uh, almost resisted saying anything about the Super Bowl this afternoon because of the fact that the Seahawks are out of it, and as my southern friends used to say, you ain't got no dog in this fight. But I, I kind of like Matt Ryan. He's a, he's a fresh new face, and when you compare him with the old guy who seems to like to throw deflated footballs, there's, there's something to be said about it at that point. I know a lot of people just say, you know, sports and football especially don't have a lot of relevance. And to some point that's true. But on the other hand, most of the good things in life take a lot of struggle and a lot of work to be successful. And as we look at the book of Haggai today, this is going to be very true. That it's going to take a lot of struggle and a lot of work to make it all happen. I'm going to take and uh, read from a modern translation here, but the story, whatever version you have, is very much the same because of the nature of the book. Haggai chapter 1. On the first day of the sixth month, on the second year that Darius was the king of Persia, the Lord told Haggai the prophet to speak his message to the governor of Judah and to the high priest. And so Haggai told the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua, that the all-powerful had said to them and to the people, you say this isn't the right time to build your temple for me. Now this is the only place we know anything about Haggai. His name in the Hebrew sort of means a festival, and so there's kind of a guess that the man was probably born during some special time in, in Israel's religious year, but what is not clear. We often classify him as a minor prophet because of the shortness of his book, but we need to understand in the Hebrew thinking that it, the minor prophets were not minor because of their length. Isaiah might have been 66 chapters and Jeremiah 52, but some of the minor prophets are minor just because their books were shorter and maybe their message was more successful. The other fact was that the 12 minor prophets were lined up on one scroll, so they became a part of the canon that way. You have to remember that scrolls are not the handiest thing to handy. The scroll of the whole book of Isaiah that was found in the Dead Sea is 24 feet long, and that's just about all you can handle, handle with two rollers and do any reading on it. And so the minor prophets became a book in their own fashion. Haggai came at a, at a very special time, as we're going to see in Israel's history, actually Judah's history, the southern part of the, uh, the once powerful nation. He and another prophet by the name of Zechariah came to God's, become God's messengers at, a, at this special time. And we don't know much about either of them except the order that they come. And so I've often thought that Haggai probably was the older of the two of them, and Zechariah perhaps the younger. His book's a little longer. He deals a lot with visions and things. A man looking to the future. Haggai, as we'll see, is a man looking basically to the past to make the present relevant at that point. And so we see as his book opens that it's a very important, a time of crisis 
in little Judah's history. And he's the man now that's going to bring things back together and to focus it along the line. When we look at the Old Testament, we, we see that it has a special message. The New Testament deals with the church and the life of the Messiah or Christ. The Old Testament deals with the people of Israel that God called out to be his messengers and his missionaries and to bring forth Messiah. And so the two come together, but they have a, a different focus. And so because Israel is the center of the ministry in the Old Testament, their history becomes very important. And while God called them out to be his witnesses and his people, they often faltered at the call. They got caught up in the world and the busyness of it. They got caught up in nationalism. And then we as Gentiles never made their ministry simple. And so as the history of the Old Testament moves on, we see that God is working among his people. But at the same time, they're struggling to understand him and his call upon their lives. And so as their religious life moves along, so does their political life. And we come to the high point in the life of David and then his son Solomon when they become a great nation. And for a time, they are a great people in the world. And then at the end of Solomon's reign, everything comes apart as the two, as the nation of Israel falls into two parts, the north and the small part of the two tribes of Judah with Jerusalem and the temple, which is so important, the focus of God's ministry at that point on earth. And so now the two parts of what had been Israel continue on their historical paths. And the north falls in 722 to the Assyrians. And the people are deported. Deported and transplanted to new places. Other people are brought in. And so the north becomes a kind of mongrel people. Neither Jew nor Gentile. With their own history and their own intentions. Down in the south, little Israel, continue, or little Judah continues on struggling to, to be a people. And to fulfill God's call on their life. They too fall into the problem that would always be theirs, and that was idolatry. And in the end, God warned them that they were going to fall under his judgment if they did not change their ways. And in the end, they could not. And so in three terrible deportations, the people of Judah were taken to Babylonia and transplanted in different areas there. And God had told them through the prophet Jeremiah that it would be 70 years before they had, would return. He said, I'm going to take back all my Sabbaths that you did not give to me. And so for 70 years, they were in exile, probably very, very much afraid that they would never like their northern relatives return to their own countries. But God had not forgotten them. In 538, God brought a new power to being, the Medo-Persians and Cyrus, and Cyrus had a very different view of how he should treat these people in exile. The old king said, we're going to take and disperse them all around so that they cannot unite and rebel against us. Cyrus said, I think if the people go home, if they take their gods with them, rebuild their temple, there will be peace, and I will have peace in my kingdom. And so he sent out a decree saying, return home. Not only that, he sent money 
and he sent the authority to take and rebuild their religious institutions. And so Israel took the opportunity to return home. Now, we would have thought after 70 years that everyone would have packed their suitcase and headed back to Judea. But in reality, only a very small part of them decided to return home. 50,000, probably out of 500,000 at that point. We used to say that there were more Jews in New York than there were in Israel. That was true up until a couple of years ago. Why didn't they all go home? For a number of reasons. You get comfortable. You have a job. It's safer to stay. And so a lot of the people stayed. Even the priests and the Levites, who you would have thought would have been the most interested in returning to their own home country and seeing the temple rebuilt, seeing the sacrifices begun, to see their service to God. There was no service for them in Babylonia. No service in Babylon. But, in fact, later on, when Ezra brought a group back some years later, he had to wait three, three days to try to get some Levites to come with him. They were the guys that did all the work, of course, at the temple, and they weren't prepared to return. It was easier, their life in Babylon. But these 50,000 prepared to return home under a uh, relative, far relative of David, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and the high priest, which they had carefully taken and, and followed the ge- genealogies. You couldn't be a priest unless you belonged to the right family. And so Joshua now will <clears throat> return to be responsible for the rebuilding of the temple. And so this little group made their way back to the land and began life over again. And one of their first projects, they were idealistic. They began to rebuild the temple, and they built the foundations. And Ezra takes and describes the occasion when that first step was taken. He said the young people all shouted with joy, with the start of what was going to be something again wonderful and fulfilling. And he said the old people who remembered the great temple of Solomon sobbed when they remembered back to what had been that great edifice, the, probably the eighth wonder of the world, and what they were seeing starting in front of them. But they went ahead and began to build. They even had a plan that they had brought with them. They were to build two great courses of stone and then a wooden structure above it. But as work began, as often happens, the enemy raised his head and began to make trouble for him. The Samaritans, who we saw, had become this mixed people, now asked if they couldn't participate. But because of their heritage and probably also their mixed beliefs, the Jews said this is not possible. And so in anger, they turned to the government, Persian government, and said these people are dangerous, they're rebellious, see what they've done in the past. And so work was stopped on the temple at just the foundation point. And I think in everybody's mind, there was a great intention to to get on with it. All they would need is the permits from the palace, and work could continue again. And then they went home. And you have to remember that they had come, probably with a mule and the clothes on their back from the land of Babylonia, and they came back to their old farmstead or started over, had to rebuild their home, prepare their fields, go to their orchards, all these things had to be taken care of. At the same time, helping to build a temple. So there was a lot of temptation to go home and work on their own things. 
And so the years began to slip by, one by one, until 16 years now had passed, 16 long years, and nothing had been done in the temple. Now, they had built an altar, so every year I'm sure that as the festivals and the times to, like, Passover to come and, and give their offerings and to remember the past, they did this. But there was no temple to reflect the glory of God or his presence. And so it's that point in history that God lays his hand on two men, Haggai and Zechariah, who come forward now to urge the people to rethink of where they are at and what needs to be done to put God's purposes first of all. It's interesting in God's plan <clears throat> that in Israel, if you wanted to be a leader, you had to be born into the king's family. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be born into the priestly line. You couldn't just decide to be a priest. But to be a prophet, if God put his hand upon you, you could be his spokesman. And so as we see in his opening passage, we, we don't get any genealogies. He doesn't come from any fancy family. He's not a priest. He's not a part of that line. He's a common man that God has put his hand on and, and called Haggai to speak to his people, to be his voice among them, and to see that things now will change and there will be a future. Haggai begins his message here with a rhetorical question. The question is, <clears throat> you say that this isn't the right time to build the temple. Why do you say that? How can you say that? For how long have you said this? He says to them. And he makes them think back to their, the reasons why they have not been fulfilling God's call on their life. Procrastination. It's a deadly word. Someone has said that it's the foundation of destruction. And I think there's great truth to that. My mother once said, if you don't give up your procrastination, you're not going to not amount to anything. And so I told her, just wait and see. <laughs> and that's what, he is, that's what little Judah had done for 16 years. They had not fulfilled God's call in their life. It was plain. I'm sure they came up to that altar twice a year, looked at the incompleteness of it, and said to themselves, we got to do something here. And then they went back home to their families and their businesses and their farms to finish things along the way. But God had, had laid it on Haggai's heart that there should be change. And change there was going to be at that point on there. I think ourselves were often faced with the whole idea of procrastination. Life is so busy. Business is busy. So many, so many pressures on our life every day. <clears throat> As I think back, my, my children are grown. I'm thankful for that. God has been kind to us and kind to them. But I can only thank my wife and other godly people who gave time and influence to them as well. I was busy carving out a career. There was always house payments. And also there's, you know, in the background, recreation and other things that calls on your life. Someday, you know, I'm going to take care of this. 
Someday it's going to happen. Someone has said, there's Monday and there's Tuesday, but someday never comes. And that's so true with things. And for our lives and for Haggai, it stands out. We have to be taken, be aware of it and begin to make some plans. And so Haggai now calls the people to make some priorities, to put things in order, not just the necessary, but what is important along the way. Listen, he says, you say this isn't the right time to build a temple for me, but is it right for you to live in your expensive houses? Many of the translations say your paneled houses. And I think it's a little jibe at them because the, the Temple of Solomon, one of its beauties was that the ceiling was paneled with cedar from, from Lebanon. It was a, a mark of, of uh, finance and economics at this point. So the people have not just finished with stone walls. They've gotten to the place where they're paneling them at this point. While my temple, he says in verse uh, 3, is a pile of ruins... Now, he says, your harvest is less than you plant. You never have enough to eat or drink. Your clothes don't keep you warm, and your wages are stored in bags full of holes. Very often in Old Testament time, the Lord gives his people this message of, of uh, material things. I'm not sure how much in modern times that we can take and appropriate this, but from the voice of the prophet, it's true. He says, I want you to take and compare what you've done, what you've planned, and what's actually happened along the way. <clears throat> you've planted crops, but they just don't seem to produce. You claim you don't have enough food. Even your clothes don't keep you warm. And your wages are put in the bag with holes. You've come to the month again, and there's not enough money. What's new? In a sense, it's as common as right now. Think about what I have said, but first go up in the hills and get wood for the temple so I can take, so I can take pride in it and be worshipped there. You expected much, but you received only little. And when you brought it home, I made the little bit disappear. Why have I done this? It is because you hurry off to build your own houses while my temple is still in ruins. That is also why the dew doesn't fall and your harvest fails. And so it is at my command, everything will become barren. Your farmland and your pastures, your vineyards and your olive trees, your animals and yourself, all your hard work will be for nothing. In a culture where <clears throat> life was basically substantial farming, this was tragic news. There were no stores to go and buy food. You grew it yourself. You took care of it yourself. It did not produce. You were in desperate situation. And that's what Haggai is outlining here for them. They have failed to take into consideration what their own actions have produced. His line that you have expected much and you have received little is probably the denoting mark of his message to his people. He's going to preach four sermons here over the next year. Each one of them to the point and to their needs. And it's going to be interesting how the people respond to him along the way. This is the first of them, and maybe the hardest of them, as he takes and shows to them that they need to take and take a hard look at their lives, and especially at their priorities. 
What is really important? Is what they are about that important, or is God really the, the center of their life? That is the question at that point. Someone has, has written about this whole need of priorities. He says, when we put God first, all other things fall into proper place. Our love of God will govern the claims of our life, demands on time all the things that we deem important, and then everything in order of its priority. God calls us to take an evaluation of our life periodically, to see where we're at, where we are going, what we are about. And like the people there in Judah, we, we need to be critical about it, willing to make changes, willing, first of all, to make God the priority in our life. We make it sometimes sound simple, but we all know that it's one of the most difficult things that we can ever do. God calls on us to make him the first thing in our life. And so with these in the background, the people and the leaders begin to think through what Haggai has called them to do and what their first steps might be. And we read in verse 12, Haggai, or excuse me, Zerubbabel, the leader, and Joshua, the high priest, together with the others who had returned from exile in Babylon, obeyed the Lord's message spoken to them by his prophet Haggai, and they started showing proper respect for the Lord. Two steps, obedience and respect. They had spoken from their hearts. They had claimed that they were following the Lord's leading, but the temple was still unfinished. It took the second step. They needed not only to believe, but to act out on this. And so it started with the leaders. I've often thought it was kind of interesting that the temple, which was the center of Jewish religious life, governed over by the high priest, by the courses of the priests, by the Levites who helped, would have been the first to take up this message and the first to lead in all the action. But it seems from, for some reason that they were hesitant to take and to be in, involved. Through Joshua, of course, they do at this point, but to what point, we never really know. This is a, a, a movement of the people, a people motivated by the word of God that comes through another person, Haggai, who speaks to them. And God touches their hearts because I think of his earnestness and the honesty of his message. He's a man speaking to their hearts and to their needs. And so the word goes out. And Haggai then told them that the Lord had promised to be with them. What more could they ask from him than that? I suspect in the background there was a lot of hesitation. They had been ordered to halt the work because of the king in Persia. Now they were going to go ahead with the work. We don't know if they needed permits or permission or what, but that was always in the background. Their enemies up in Samaria, the Samaritans, they were still there. They still didn't want the temple finished. They saw it as a, a challenge to their, to their order and to their power. They didn't want it done. And then the people, I suspect for the most part, were still 
very poor. This is going to be totally volunteer labor. We think our commute is rough every day, and it is bad, but we don't have to walk it. They had to walk from their villages, their homes, to get up to Jerusalem to carry on the work. They had to give up their gardens, their fields, their herds, their orchards for a time to give their labor. This was commitment. And so this was not going to be just a a day or two. This was going to be a long project. They knew that. This was calling on a lot for the people. And yet they, they stood up and were willing to do it. And so the Lord God in in verse 14, Almighty made everyone eager to work on the temple. Excitement, motivation. It came through Haggai now, and they began to realize this was something they needed to do, they should do. And wouldn't it be wonderful when it was finished? And so they began the work. (coughs) Especially Zerubbabel and Joshua And so the work began on the 24th day of the same month. So Haggai's message came on the first day. Three weeks later, people were at work. What a fantastic beginning to this this ministry. The promise of the temple to be fulfilled. To God, again, to be the center of the community and the center of his people. To be finished. A place to be of worship and a place to praise him. But life, as we well know, is not always so simple, and there are always problems. Chapter 2. On the 21st day of the next month, so about a month now has passed, the Lord told Haggai the prophet to speak the message to the governor and the high priest and to everyone else. Does anyone remember how glorious this temple used to be? Now it looks like nothing. But cheer up, because I, the Lord All-Powerful, will be here to help you with the work, just as I promised your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt. Don't worry. My spirit is right here with you. Discouragement. Every big project comes to this point, doesn't it? We come to the place where the enthusiasm runs out, energy runs out. It's a long walk every day. It's a lot of work. I've got other things to do. And so what had begun as as a great enthusiastic beginning suddenly starts to run out of steam. And at this point that Haggai comes back now with his second message, a message to encourage his people He reminds reminds them, he says, is there anybody here who remembers what the temple used to be? Maybe he did. If he did, he would have been a very old man. It's almost 70 years now have transpired since the temple was destroyed. He would have had to see it as as a young child, but maybe it was still burned into his memory. Or at least the stories of the great temple of Solomon. This is what it was. He says, you remember it. But now, he says, when you look at what we've got here, it doesn't measure up. It's just a pile of stones, really. Unfinished, incomplete, and even when it will be done, we'll never be able to put that white marble on. There will be no gold. There will be none of the acraments that were a part of Solomon's temple. 
But he says, cheer up. Cheer up. Because I, the Lord all-powerful, will be here to help you with the work. Just as I promised your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt. So he takes them back, all the way back to that time when they were slaves in Egypt and everything seemed hopeless. And God sent a savior in Moses to bring them out and to change their whole history. Remember what he did. He parted the Red Sea. He gave us food. He gave us water. He brought us to Canaan. Who did this? Our Lord God did it. He's still here. This is his intention that you finish his temple, that he can be worshiped here, that his power can be manifested again here in us. Be encouraged. And he brings out the one word that is so common in so much that we do. Don't fear. Don't fear. So much of fear is, is just things that are never going to happen, but we are anxious. We are anxious when we go to bed at night for the next day. We are anxious about our job, our family, everything we fear. And God says to us, don't fear. I am with you. That's the difference. He said, I am with you. Even this pile of stone is one day going to have a different message to it. It's going to be something else. And he encourages the people to return to work. That in spite of what seems to be so little and so meaningless, that he's going to take and touch it in a different way. And then he gives them a promise. He says in verse 6, Soon I again will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations and their treasures will be brought here. And then the brightness of my glory will fill this temple. All the silver and the gold will belong to me. And I promise that this new temple will be far glorious than the first one. I will also bless this city with peace. He doesn't give them a particular date. He just says, this is going to happen. And for a people who are poor and destitute, probably to measure all this silver and gold that under Solomon had also been a part of their life and was now long gone, was a great hope they would have. Prosperity always is at one point. But he takes them a step further. And he begins to talk about this new temple. Although in its essence, it will never look like Solomon's beautiful edifice. It will probably be just a glorious pile of finished stone. It is going to have a character about it that is going to reach far beyond all the beauty and the magnificence of what Solomon had built. Because not of what it is, but because of who is going to come to it. Many years down the line, it will be some modifications and changes and history will come. And even a new king will attempt to add to the, this temple to make it another Solomon. There's going to be a very special individual who's going to come to this temple to bless it by his presence. They, they know him only as Messiah. We know him in, in full as the Lord Jesus. 
is going to come to this temple. He is going to bring his presence, his kingdom, his power, God's very presence into this building and make a difference. It's interesting that when Mary and Joseph come out of the temple after the uh, time there of, of uh, Jesus' inauguration, that he looks on Jesus and he prophesies. For he says, my eyes have seen your Savior, a light to the Gentiles and the glory for Israel. He understood. Now whether he had read Haggai or God had enlightened his heart, we are not clear about it. But it is clear that he understood that this child was something very special coming down the steps of that temple. The after child of the one that these people were working on. God has intended that this temple had a very special purpose. The purpose was that it was also going to become the place of his very own son. The savior of the world who would grace those steps who would come there, unfortunately be rejected, but at this place who would give his life that would change all of history and the meaning for everyone that we understand as the Savior of the world. Now back here at this point, as Haggai preaches his message, the word glory only brings to the people a great hope. But that has always been the hope. God's future for them, that he's going to do something great and wonderful because he's a part of it. There's a story about a pilgrim who was wandering across Europe during the medieval times. And there was a lot of building going on during that period of time. And as he comes to one of the great cities, he saw that a group of men are working on a project. And he's curious, and so he asks one of the men who is working, he said, what, what are you doing? And the man said, can't you see? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing cement. And he moves on a little to another man who is doing some work with some stone. He said, what are you doing? And the man was very, very kind of curlish. And he says, I'm, I'm cutting stone, can't you see? And then there's a man doing some work in another corner there, and he's whistling and happy, and he asks, sir, what are you doing? And he looks up and he says, I'm building a cathedral. And I think that's one of the insights that Haggai gives to us about our everyday life. These people got caught up as they worked on the temple and the fact that it really isn't much compared to what Solomon's was. And even when it's done, what will it be? And they lost perspective. They lost the idea that this is something that's God's work. And even mixing cement can be important in the long term of what God intends with it. And to me, it's always been a great encouragement that as we go about our daily work, that as minor as it is, insequential as it often feels, as frustrating as it sometimes feels, when they put it into God's perspective, we are building cathedrals, one stone at a time. And this is the encouragement that Haggai is giving to these people. 
tired and frustrated, discouraged about what they're doing at the slowness of it, the minimalness of it, and yet Haggai says to them, understand that in the future, this place is going to be the most significant project in the whole world because I am coming to it. And because God is involved in all that we are involved in, it always has significance. And because it has significance, we too are significant to him. And I put a little outline on the back of your bulletin today, not just to tell you when I was done, but to give you a little clue as to where we were going. To be careful for, that we do not become procrastinators, which is so easy in life. I'll put it off till tomorrow. The need that we need to set priorities in our life, that we, we understand that God has something more than necessities. He has something important for us. And that to remember that whatever we are about, it is significant because he is in it. We are building cathedrals because it is his work and we need to remember.